Welcome to the Dance Science Podcast. I'm your host, the Dance Scientist, and the Dance Science Podcast intends to build connections and drive discussion on how we can improve our field and make dance science more normalized. Thank you for being here and please enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for being here with us today. I'm your host, the Dance Scientist, and today is episode number 32, and we're going to be having another amazing guest speaker today. Her name is Ginger, and she's a dance physical therapist. So first, thank you, Ginger, for being here with us today. Hey, Maria. Thanks for having me. This is going to be super exciting. If you guys didn't know, we're actually hosting a workshop together next month. <laughs> yeah, so this is. so if you uh, haven't heard anything about it yet, I believe, is it episode 29 of your podcast? You might be right. (laughs) I think it's 29. Okay, okay. I think I just found an Instagram, so um, go check that out if you haven't heard about it yet. Um, It's hopefully going to be amazing. Um, I am really excited about it. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, I can also link that into this episode's information. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about becoming a dance physical therapist, you know, like your journey in dance and kind of what led you down this path? Yeah, um, so just to uh, introduce myself with my full name, my name is Ginger Ann Nesland. I am a a dance physical therapist, but I'm also a professional dancer and a dance educator. Um, So, uh, you know, we all have, a lot of us anyway, have a similar story of like, we basically popped out of the womb dancing and I'm very similar. I had a tutu before I was even in dance classes. It is what it is. Um, but I, so I've been dancing since I was really young and I really wanted to continue dancing beyond just high school. So I ended up eventually, um, getting into the dance department at the university of Michigan and um, getting my BFA there. While I was doing that, though, I was also attempting to get a Bachelor of Science in biochemistry. Hmm. Um, my initial goal was actually to do cancer research and Alzheimer's research, wow. because those are things that, yeah, right, are like, uh, they're not wildly different from PT, because it's yeah. all in, somewhere in the healthcare field. But I was a major introvert, which uh, maybe people don't know that now, people who see me in my adult life. Um, I was a major introvert. I didn't want to have to talk to, like, the public. I just wanted to, like, be in a lab by myself and, like, using pipettes. (laughs) That was, like, the ideal job for me. Um, And cancer was one of those things that, like, nobody's been able to figure out yet. Like, I want to be that person. And one of my like biggest fears in life is losing my memory. So Alzheimer's was one of those things that was just like really interesting to me. And, you know, I really want to solve it. So, like, so I don't have to get it. <laughs> um, but as I was going through uh, trying to get my biochemistry degree, it was not working out. Mm. Let me tell you, like, I think I'm a smart person. I uh, can understand when people are like, but you're really smart. You should have. Mm. I was failing my first biochemistry class twice. Wow. <laughs> But like it happens, it happens to all of us, wow. right? Um, for me, it was more of a like I was also double majoring, mm. and I did not have the time to be studying um, as much as I needed to for that kind of course. So it is what it is. But anyway, so I knew I had to shift gears, and what lines up better with dance? Something that's in the healthcare field than physical therapy, right? Like basically nothing. That's that's like the number one like movement. Yes, that is me. Um, And, you know, I've always wanted to work in something that was science based, 
Um, math is my favorite subject. I love spreadsheets. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I wanted to do something in the healthcare field. Um, and that just happened to line up already with like some of my interests. So I ended up doing, um, getting my degree in physical therapy in 2015 from the university of Michigan in Flint. Mm. Um, and have been practicing since then. Mm. Uh, my, my real goal as a clinician was to eventually kind of move into the space where I'm working primarily with dancers instead of just the lay person. Cause dance people are my people. Like I have been a dancer since I have existed. Um, and those are just the people that I know the best and communicate the best with and yeah. want to be around. Yeah. So. so tell us about some of the services that you offer as a dance PT. So um, currently I, I do offer physical therapy services to people as long as they're within the state of Michigan, because that's unfortunately where my license is. I don't have licenses across states at the moment, um, but I also do um, like one-on-one training and wellness services. So for anybody who's a dancer, who's say trying to get their splits or trying to jump higher or get their leg higher in an extension, like any of that kind of stuff, I I love working with those people because like sometimes it's a bummer to only work with people who are in pain. I love helping people get out of pain. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, they are thankful for it. (laughs) But it's, it's, turns out to be a bummer a lot of the time when all you're doing is trying to help people get out of pain. I love also helping people on the other side to like achieve a goal they've been going after for a long time. Mm. Um, So those are some of like the one-on-one services that I offer. Um, I also do workshops. Um, A lot of the workshops that I do tend to be very injury prevention based. Mm. Um, I do point readiness screenings. Um, So anybody who's like getting ready to get on point, Mm. like that's something that I help with. Um, determining whether or not they're ready and specifically what kinds of things they need to work on to get themselves there. Yes. So I, I've definitely done some like mm-hmm. one-on-one training to help some um, students get on point. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a really yeah. big seller actually. Yeah. Um, and then I, on my website, I also do have a few like digital products that mm-hmm. people can purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the majority of what I do. And so what are some of your challenges and maybe like what's one of your favorite parts of doing this? So in um, part of our topic later, one of my biggest challenges in my business, um, which speaking of my business, my business is Divergent Physical Therapy and Wellness. We have to really say the name. Um, I'm horrible at introducing myself usually, so it's okay. <laughs> trying to get better at that. Um, my business Uh, I do not work with insurance. I have specifically Mm. chosen not to work with insurance and just say work with insurance. Insurance will still pay for me, Mm. but I don't specifically communicate with them Mm. um, because it it ends up um, sort of stifling what I want to do. They Mm. they, there's a lot of restrictions when you deal with insurance companies on what I'm allowed to do, how often I'm allowed to do it um, and how I need to be treating clients. And I don't want an insurance company to be deciding any of that for me. No. I think that that those decisions need to be between me and my client. Right. So um, that's one of the big reasons. The other one is just there's there's a lot more hassle in communicating with insurance companies. Mm. They're a headache. If anybody's listening has dealt with an insurance company in the past, they're a headache. Yeah. And um, I know we'll get into this later, but you were saying like yeah. it creates barriers for you as the clinician, but I'm sure it also creates barriers for the dancers too. I'm sure they're 
don't they usually experience like more confusion and stuff? We're dealing yeah, with insurance. I mean, um, when it comes to insurance, uh, I, I have a lot of like political feelings on this too, but political feelings aside, um, insurance is confusing on purpose. Mm. Um, and I, there's a lot of dancers that either don't have insurance because of the type of situation that they're in with their, right. you know, they might have multiple jobs and they don't necessarily get benefits. Yeah. So number one, they, they are sort of a little bit afraid to use the healthcare system yes. because of that. In general. Um, yeah. But those that do have any amount of insurance, they aren't sure exactly what it's even going to pay for, what it's going to cover. They go and see us, uh, you know, any kind of a provider. And then like months later, they get a bill out of the blue. That they don't know. And why. my issue was like, what are we paying for then? If, if we're paying a monthly fee to an insurance company and then we still get a bill... Yeah, what's the point? What is it that we're paying for, right? And, and that's where, like, the big confusion comes in. I could talk about this all day. I don't want to go into too much depth on it. But what I'll say is one of my big struggles is um, getting dancers to invest in taking care of their own bodies. Mm. That is a huge, huge um, barrier in my business. Mm. That um, because... dancers understand the importance of mm. taking care of their body. But we don't always have the finances or understand um, the benefit of working with somebody like me mm. versus going somewhere that takes their insurance mm. and getting that kind of care. Because, mm. you know, it's it's time, it's money, and it's energy at the end of the day. Exactly. It's not even exactly. just money. Yeah. So but again, because I don't work with insurance, mm. I get to sort of do things on my terms and what works best for my clients. So, for instance, I have a lot of clients that I only see once for an issue. Mm. And when you go to standard insurance-based physical therapy, it's a they're going to lock you in to two to three times a week, mm. multiple weeks. And not that that's not beneficial for people, right. but dancers are also a different breed of human. You exactly. You don't babies out the same way. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> right? Like this, this is, again, why I love working with dancers. I love when I give a dancer a correction, an instruction, whatever it happens to be, and they immediately it's, get it. It's immediate. Versus the layperson who I have to, we have to work a few sessions yes. to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I always say, you know. Mm-hmm. Go yeah, ahead. I'm just able to, like, communicate exactly what I need from them, and they're able to get it right back to me. Like, yes. that's, I love that. The body awareness is ingrained in us from day one. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the ability to Understood. take and immediately execute mm. correction. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Because I always so say... I, mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes all I need is one session with somebody. Mm. Sometimes it's once a week. Sometimes it's once a month. Sometimes it varies, and... I get to pick though. I get to pick exactly how that's going to go. And I work it out with my client, what they can afford, what they can handle in their schedule versus, you know, the standard, if you're not being seen two or three times a week, the insurance company questions it Mm. and they cut you off. Mm. And it, again, it's interesting because it's like, who else should be able to make the decision besides you and the person you're working with? Right. Right. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, that this even ex- that this operates like this, <laughs> and people don't even know. Right. And like some some external force is telling you how many sessions should be happening. Yeah, yeah. With there's, no... there's a few insurance companies that very specifically limit how many visits you're allowed to get, and as a PT, we have to turn on extra paperwork to those companies mm. to validate 
any visits that we ask for. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, it doesn't matter what we write down, they're still going to deny you. So it's like, okay, wow. now you've made me jump through a hoop for what? So You're going to deny me anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you guys, you guys too aren't being supported by the insurance companies. Right. Like it's... So who are they supporting? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Whoever owns the insurance company. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, oh my gosh. <laughs> so maybe you want to touch on the insurance stuff more, but how do you kind of see this all contributing to progressing dance science? So um, it's, it's a tricky question to answer because what I do as a physical therapist, it includes a lot of science. I'm aiming at dancers, but because in physical therapy, it's a very one-on-one act, it's really hard to reach large groups of people. It's really hard to make an effect on the entire um, dance world that way. Mm. So I use all of my other services to kind of do that. Mm. So every time that I see a one-on-one client, I'm including science in my education with them. Mm. Like I am, I'm teaching them about their body, about the anatomy. I'm teaching them the physiology. We put a lot of puzzle pieces together. And I love that. But I use other things like workshops, Mm. um, any, any stuff that I do on social media, like that is me attempting to affect the dance world on a bigger scale. Yeah. And though that's a, especially things on social media, like I don't get paid for that. That's just things that I, I, I want what's best for all of us. Dancers. Right. right. <laughs> That's from the goodness of my own heart. Um, and because I want to see that change happening, but from a perspective of a business owner and mm. the services that I provide, that is we're affecting change on a very small scale. Mm. But I, you know, I like to say even small changes, it's still moving the needle, right? It's still something. Exactly. And I, the, the clients that I most enjoy working with are um, older, I'll say older dancers. I'm putting this in quotations. You can't see this on, on a podcast, so I'm going to say it. I'm putting it in quotations. Older dancers. Um, Maria and I both know older dancers means like anybody past high school. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> um, because the, the dance world is so skewed younger especially for like professional careers yeah like once you hit your 30s and 40s you're kind of on your way out yeah unfortunately even younger for for big time companies yeah so for me the older dancer is really anybody past high school yeah um and those are my those are the people i really love to work with because they're at an age where they start to understand the importance Mm. you know when we're teenagers like we're invincible a hundred percent i feel like i felt that way too literally you look back and you're like it's really nice to know anything that we know in the future but you're also a teenager that's how you're supposed to be so you know you have to give yourself flack um but there's you know people they're starting to understand the the importance of all of this stuff um they're starting to see the world outside of just themselves Mm. um and a lot of them start to look at what they're doing with their future right are they going to become a professional are they going to become a teacher are they not going to really dance at all are they going to dance recreationally? Um, you know, they're at that kind of point in their life where they're making these decisions. And I love helping people who are maybe between two decisions. But like if I help them tweak some part of their technique or help them get out of pain, that maybe they'll pick a different path mm. than they would otherwise. Mm. So like for me, for instance, like 
yes, my story was already long, but it could have been way longer at the beginning, how I got into dance PT. And one of, the, one of the other big reasons is, like, I never got picked to be in stuff. Like, even in college, I was not the person that got called on every time to be in a piece. I had to work my butt off yep. to get cast in anything. And, you know, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and figured, well, if I'm not getting picked in college where, like, I have a certain number of credits I have to get, so they eventually have to pick me. Right. <laughs> that, like, nobody out in the real world ever has to pick me. So, like, am I going to ever be able to build a career off of that? Mm. You know, and looking back at everything, man, if I knew any of the science that I know now, that mm. might be entirely different. Oh, yeah. I say that so all the time. So, for those people, you know, I love... I love teaching teachers new information that they can take into the classroom. I love teaching, again, people who are like, do I go to college? Do I go off and have a professional career? Or do I just want to do recreational? And like, if we can shift something for them, does that help them make a decision Mm. that they truly want deep down in their soul, Mm. but they're just not sure about? Mm. I like that you kind of help them move the needle, you know? In a gentle way, without, like, forcing them into a decision. Because it is ultimately their career path, you know, whatever they pick. Yeah, 100%. So. But I've, I've had, I've definitely had dancers say things to me before, like, I would love to have a professional career, but my hip. Mm, the butt. Right? Mm. And you're like, yeah, but it's just your hip. Let's make your hip better and then Let's... go for it. Yeah, you're giving them, why, you know, Why have it hold you back? Yeah, you're giving them the solutions that they they might not even know exist in the -hmm. first place. Yeah. Cause they might think that they're stuck with that stuff forever. Right. But like the, um, you know, being able to get up on point, Mm -hmm. it's not for everyone. Let me tell you, I had many of classmates that the minute they put that first fair point shoes on and went up, they went, Ooh, this hurts too bad. I don't like this. (laughs) Uh, Same here. Yeah. It's not for them, but there are a lot of people who it's a really strong desire for them to even attempt it. And man, if they are not, physically ready for it you put yourself in a position where you could get injured really easily yeah. and i want to see everybody succeed of upon course. those point shoes yeah so in your one-on-one sessions do you do a lot of like dance specific exercises or do you kind of do a mix what's kind of your it method? depends on where the person is in their recovery mm-hmm. so for instance um usually at the beginning if somebody has had a really severe acute injury a sprain, a broken bone, um, things like that, where maybe they've had to take weight off of the, the limb entirely, mm. right? Where they're non-weight bearing, they had to use crutches, they had something like big like that, um, or had to wear a boot for a long time. Those people usually, when we first get started, it is not man specific whatsoever. Just basic. You just have to get your range of motion back. You have to start wiggling your toes. You have to like very, very basic. And, this is across the board. It's not just for dance people. This is mm. for literally any human out there. That's where you're going to start. And so for me, when I'm, when, when I have a client who's in that position and they're kind of struggling with like, you know, I'm, I really want to do work with you, but I'm not sure about the financial end of things and all that stuff. I say, that's fine. You go see anybody for that beginning part because you're going to do the basic the stuff, same same stuff. Basic stuff. Mm. You don't need to come see me for that. That is easy peasy. See literally anybody for that. <laughs> Once you get past that stage and you need to start getting into dance specific, that's when you can come back hmm. and work with me. Because hmm. then, then I I have much more knowledge than just your average PT on how to get back to dance things. Yes. And so, yeah, it just depends on where you're at in recovery. Mm-hmm. Early stages, 
simple as we get up higher, especially when somebody starts to get back into things like jumping. Mm -hmm. That is like a, um, it's a hard hill to get over sometimes. Mm -hmm. I've had dancers in the past that like they go and see a normal PT, Mm -hmm. they get up to the point and it's unfortunate because a lot of it comes down to insurance that like, okay, well now you're normal again. I'm putting quotations up. Yeah you're normal again so we're done with you and dancers already have such a we have such a crazy range of motion that we hit normal fast very quickly (laughs) and so to uh, according to the data the measurements that we take right that person's back to normal Mm. but they still can't do their jumps they still can't maybe Mm. you know stay on relevé for very long and that's where seeing somebody Mm. who understands that you need way better range of motion than the mm-hmm. average human that you need way more strength than the average human to do this kind of stuff and motor control mm. i could talk about that one all day too me too I love uh, it. <laughs> so that's where you really need to work with somebody who knows what they're talking about mm. And that brings up another point that I also 100% agree with is that dancers should see a dance pt so can you touch a little bit about why this is important if they if possible for them obviously yeah. Um, and again, I think I think it really just comes down to a dance PT is going to understand a lot better what your specific needs are. Mm. Um, you know, it, and it's not just a matter of like, okay, getting you back to wherever a general dancer would need to be. But I can talk to people about their specific choreography exactly. and figure out exactly what they need to make modifications to. Right. For instance, I um, did physical therapy for... Um, Mark Morris when they were in town here in Detroit and one of the dancers was having some shoulder issues and was describing to me the arm motion that she had to do in the piece and I said to her I was like well why don't you make this tiny little shift that's not going to affect the choreography whatsoever Mm. it's you're just angling your body slightly differently Mm. but it puts your shoulder in a position where you're not causing pinching Mm. And she was like, oh, I can make that happen. Mm. You know, we were able to like slightly shift how she was mm-hmm. doing the choreography to reduce strain on her shoulder, but it didn't affect the choreography in terms of what the viewer was going to see. Mm. And she's able to reduce stra- like repetitive strain like, that she's doing to her shoulder. First of all, overuse like, injury was probably about to happen at some point. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And again, just ugh, that's like a very specific example. Yeah of a specific thing that could have been modified super easily. Yeah. But because you understand the language, uh, right? Yeah. Other, even other um, types of athletics. Yeah. Um, non-aesthetic. Mm, exactly. Athletics, that, say that five times fast. Like football, um, you know. It's, it's, it's different in our goal. Mm. So say like basketball, they just have to get the ball in the hoop. Yeah. They don't have to do it pretty. Yeah. There's no aesthetics. For aesthetic sports, we have to do it and we have to look good doing it. Like figure skaters, yeah, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you're you're talking to somebody who doesn't quite understand that aspect of it, they're going to say, well, just stop doing it. Yeah, just just don't do that anymore. Or we're going to modify it this way, but then it's going to affect the line. The quotations, right? We always talk about the line in dance. The like, I know how to make the modification and not affect the line. I think <laughs> that's, that's a no-no. And I think that's a really good example. And then you can kind of just think in your head, like, if that dancer just happened to see, like, a general PT, like you said, they probably just would have 
obviously handle it, handled it otherwise, right? I see a lot, yeah, I see a lot of dancers that go and see a general PT who end their PT very soon because, again, they hit those milestones, so lack of a better yeah. term, right? They they have the full range of motion. They have full, quote-unquote, strength. Yeah. Um, all of the stuff that we're taught in PT school is a normal, quote-unquote, normal person. Dancers hit that like, almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're so much faster than the average person at getting those things back. Yeah. Um, and then a PT is sort of like, well, I don't know what to do with you. You're hitting all the benchmarks. Bye. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm out of ideas. Yeah. They like literally run out. The insurance company's not going to pay for you to just keep coming. So just keep doing your exercises. So you get cut off pretty soon. Mm. But again, you go back to dance classes and you're like, yeah, but I still can't get up on my full roll Yeah. So but I still can't do jumps without mm. pain. And that's where somebody who understands the art can come in and say, well, yeah, because you don't have your full range of motion for what a dancer needs. Mm. And you might not have, you might have full quote unquote strength according to what we call a manual muscle test, but you might not have the amount of strength endurance. Um, technically it comes down to metabolism mm. within your muscles to be able to do consecutive jumps mm. or to be able to cushion the blow as you're landing. Mm motor units and all that yeah yeah that's Recruitment. getting real technical yeah. but i'm not going that far <laughs> and something i was thinking of too is dancers already have a hard time trusting so you know imagining them going to a general pt and kind of having that negative experience and then you know them kind of being like well i don't want to try pt again you know it probably will turn them off to ever wanting to try again would you agree right yeah yeah and i will say to dancers in general uh, according to the literature that's out there don't have a huge trust for the medical system no, in general nothing <laughs> and i can understand why again uh, dancers are so fearful that somebody's going to tell them to stop dancing no i feel that pain no i don't Always. want somebody to tell me to stop doing the thing i love either of course 100 percent. your average provider especially a primary care physician that's probably going to be their go-to yeah. because they otherwise don't know what to do for of you of course just sit out. Don't ask them to tell you yeah. what to do. Just sit out for six weeks. You'll be fine. <laughs> right? Which is not at all the case. Like, I mean, you can sit out all you want, and there are some certain things that as soon as you jump back in, it's going to be right back. Yeah. I mean, but sitting out for six weeks, it doesn't do no good. Like, literally. And a general not. practitioner, a primary care physician, is not going to be able to, like, figure that out for you because that's not what they're trained to do. I'm glad we're having this conversation because, again, there's so many myths and so much so much confusion, and it. I just feel bad for dancers having yeah. to go through yeah. these things. And you know, I I can understand and totally agree if somebody has a mistrust for the medical system. Yeah. And this is where you know if you're going to see somebody and you're really having trust issues, that you really need to pick somebody who understands. Dangerous. what you are going through mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just from a trust standpoint but purely a like okay well if you're going to somebody who's literally not trained to be able to give you the right information duh, you're going to walk away from that yeah because it's feeling Defeated. like they didn't understand you and yeah. like you don't trust them i mean you're almost backtracking at that yeah. point it, yeah it just doesn't um i i say this all the time to everybody general practitioners, primary care physicians, whichever you call them, 
their primary job is to refer you to someone else. <laughs> they are not meant to solve your problem. There are some minor problems that they can solve. If you've yeah. got minor high blood pressure, if you yeah. are pre-diabetic, like there are certain things that they are very well trained to take care of to yeah. try to nip things in the butt early. They're really good at sending people out for testing. Yeah. They are not that great at diagnosing mm. unless they have decided to specialize in something. Mm. Because what a general practitioner is, is literally like, I know a little about a lot. Exactly. But they don't know a lot about a little. <laughs> right? So I don't really trust their opinion for much. Mm-hmm. Um, I I utilize them, and I think everybody should utilize them as a jumping off point. Yeah. That Connector. is what they are, as a jumping off point. Yes. It's not to say that they're not good at their job. Right. Um, they may be very good at their job, especially if they're referring out. I have found that there's a lot of general practitioners that don't like to refer out. Mm. Those are the ones that I have a hard time with. Yeah. Because why wouldn't they want to? Their job is primarily to to refer to a specialist. They are the gateway, right? Their first position, if you will. Yeah, because otherwise you you can't just make appointments depending on your insurance. Right. And so, some insurances do limit yeah. you where you have to go see them first yeah. before you can see a specialist. But even without that, it's, that's all that I use my, my general practitioner for is a gateway to bounce ideas off of, mm-hmm. to ask for that referral, to, if I know that there's a, a simple issue that I'm having that I just need a, uh, you know, an antibiotic yeah, like, to take care of over a short course of time. That's what they're good for. Like kind of they a straightforward. They are not good for diagnosing if yeah. you've got a very specific kind of tendonitis. Yes. They are not that person. Yeah. They will say foot pain is what you have. Right. So, you know, you shouldn't really be treating them as like a PT. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't treat them as the um, ultimate knowledge for basically anything. <laughs> overstepping which happens and this is i very specifically picked out the practitioner that i did mm-hmm. to be my primary care physician yeah me too because i knew that she was going to communicate with me yeah. about what was going on for me and if i bring a valid point she will give me a referral somewhere yeah. i finally am in the same situation i found a really good one yeah. yeah and those are the ones that are really good at their job are the ones that listen to what you say yeah take in the information synthesize it and, then, and like, then are able to either send you off for testing, send you to a, a specialist, yeah. send you. Yeah. They should be sending you somewhere. <laughs> Something should be happening. <laughs> right. right. Not just, well, stay off of it for six yeah. weeks and we'll see what happens. It's just silly advice. Yeah. So where can people learn more about you and where can they kind of access your resources? So um, the main place that you can find out the most about what I am up to is on my website, um, www.divergentpt.com. Um, and I'm sure that will get put yep. in the show. Yep. And the link, information. Right? Yep. Um, but you can also find me on Instagram at Modern Dance PT. Mm-hmm. And um, you can hear from me if you're on Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook group called Wellness Tips for Dance Teachers. 
Um, I am not yet, nor probably will ever be on TikTok. Sorry, TikTokers. <laughs> Two social medias is enough for me. <laughs> so I'm really on Instagram and Facebook primarily. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for part one. Okay, everyone, welcome to part two. We're going to be discussing a little bit more specifically about navigating healthcare. So, you know, we were touching on this topic earlier about general practitioners and the importance of them being able to transfer you out to a specialist, right, Ginger? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I talked a bit about sort of the general practitioner's role in that or the primary care physician, whichever terminology you like to use that they are really meant to be the gateway to a specialist. So I always like to bring this back to like, you know, your body best, right? Um, That going to see a general practitioner, um, I don't, I don't always trust their advice um, right off the bat because again, they know a little about a lot. They don't know a lot about a little. And if you have a really specific problem, they might not be able to help you um, identify exactly what's going on. So there's there's a thing in healthcare, um, in the healthcare system, from the practitioner standpoint, that is called differential diagnosis, and that's where we're determining is it a broken bone or is it a tendonitis, right? We're we're kind of deciding between a few things, and a, a primary care physician is not going to be quite as good at that because they have not necessarily been trained to do that for every single part of the body, right? If they had to do that for every single part of the body, it would. they'd never finish school. Yeah, it'd be lifelong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's the entire reason that we have specialists in the first place. Yeah. So what they are meant to do is to identify, hmm, that sounds like a heart problem. Let me send you to a cardiologist, mm. right? So that the cardiologist can do the differential diagnosis because they're going to be way better at it than that primary care physician. So the, the point of bringing up the fact that like a primary care physician is this gatekeeper is I, I want people to be more educated and that like they are not the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they have an MD or a DO behind their name does yeah. not mean that they know absolutely everything that there is to know about the human body. True. I don't even know everything that there is to know about the human body. I defer to other people when I don't know. But that is what we are meant to do. If it's outside of our scope of practice, we are meant to send you off to see a different specialist. Mm. And so, like, for me, there there's definitely a couple areas where, you know, we're very specifically trained to send somebody off Mm. to see a different specialist. And one particular case that I can recall, so I work um, a lot with people with vestibular issues. Mm. Um, Because I have a little bit of extra training in that area. And if you don't know what vestibular means, for those who are listening, it's your inner ear. It's your ability to feel upright when you're upright instead of feeling dizzy or spinny. Um, It's the thing that makes us really, really dizzy when we're doing turns. Yeah. Yeah? Um, So I work with people that have vestibular issues um, a bit more than maybe the average PT. And one of the tests that we are supposed to do as we're screening things out, so we're determining we have to make sure it's not a blood pressure issue. We're making Mm. sure it's not a brain issue, Mm. that it truly is our vestibular system, which is actually external to our brain, Mm. um, is that we have to run through some different screening tests. Mm. And one of the tests that you do is to check and make sure that it's not the arteries that run along the neck. Mm that we're not, we're not occluding one of them, we're not cutting one of them off, and that's what's causing a dizzy feeling. 
And I had one gentleman come in to see me at one point with dizziness. And I did this test with him and he started to feel like he was going to pass out. Mm. And the point of the screening test is that once you've done this test, you immediately stop the session and tell them to go see a doctor, Mm. (laughs) a medical doctor, not a physical therapist, because what they have is nothing that I can help them with. Mm. If they are having occlusion of one of their arteries running up their neck, that is a big problem Mm. and something that I cannot solve for them. Mm. And so that is exactly what I did. Mm. We stopped the session. I said, that was a positive test for you. This means it is not a vestibular problem. This means that it is an artery problem. And you need to go see a different kind of specialist for that. Mm. And then kind of going back to like the injuries when we were talking about like the primary care providers. So like, who do you recommend dancers see first, like upon their injury? Let's say they have like an acute injury. Who should kind of be their first go-to? So there's a few different ways that you can kind of attack it. Um, And it's going to depend on your insurance as well. Mm. This is the tricky part. If you don't know that much about your insurance, you need to call and talk to them about it. Look through the pamphlets that they send you at least annually in the mail. Um, Some of them will require you to go see your primary care first Mm. to then ask for a referral out to physical therapy. Um, If it is something more musculoskeletal, Mm. definitely I would go see a PT first. And within the state of Michigan, and really every state now has some level of what we call direct access, Mm -hmm. which means that you can go see a physical therapist without having to see your doctor first. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not your insurance will pay for it, that's a separate thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Some insurances do cover it. Like, I'm pretty sure that Priority Health and Half, don't quote me on that, are really good about covering it, even if you don't have a referral from your doctor. Mm -hmm. But there are quite a few insurances that specifically require a referral for them to cover that service. So that's something check in with your insurance company about it. So you may have to go see a primary care first. Now, if you're not sure what the problem is, maybe you've got some numbness, some tingling, some dizziness, that type of stuff, though, it can be definitely dealt with from a PT perspective, depending on what it is. You may also still just want to go see your primary care physician. So yeah. they can run their couple of tests yeah. before you even come see a PT. Mm. Mind you, you can still come see a PT. And if a PT says, yeah, that's something I can't touch the mm. same way that I did with that gentleman, we will send you back to your primary care. Mm. So. I see. All right. We're back. Go ahead, Ginger. Yeah. So. Um, I don't remember exactly what I was saying, but just saying that if, if it's something that you're not quite sure if it's musculoskeletal, you're not quite sure what body area, you know, is causing you an issue, you could see your primary care, you could see a PT first. That one I leave up to the person. It's, um, sometimes they feel like my sister is one. She feels really comfortable. She's a little bit of a hypochondriac. She loves seeing her primary care. Anytime she starts to get a sniffles, a headache tingling in her fingers doesn't matter what it is she's going to see her doctor about it and that's great for her i love that for her (laughs) that she's willing to do that um especially that something musculoskeletal absolutely come to a pt um and again we're really good at being able to screen things out and determine if it's even something that we can deal with right um now if it's anything that we call like a red flag so chest pain loss of consciousness, like blood in your urine, that type of stuff, go to the emergency room Mm. where I would maybe start. (laughs) The blood in the urine, that might be a call to your primary care, but the chest pain, loss of consciousness, like go to the ER. Yes. Go to the ER. 
Yeah. Don't go to an urgent care. Mm. Um, it says urgent care, and I really think we need to change that name. <laughs> they can't help you if you're having a heart attack. Oh, really? There's literally nothing they can do for your heart attack. I didn't know that. They will just get <laughs> you an ambulance. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I did a brief clinical at an urgent care, and we did have a gentleman come in with symptoms of a heart attack, so chest pain, right? And that's all that they did for him was get him a an ambulance hmm. to go to the ER. So don't don't go to an urgent care. Urgent care is more for like you know your routine, screen. you know uh, exams and routine um, uh, vaccinations yeah. and stuff like that. They are not really good at taking care of other stuff. Yeah, and. So do dancers need a referral to see you, though, since you're working out of insurance? So, uh, no. Um, again, the, the there's a difference between what the law says and what insurance says. Um, and this is a big differentiation. So the law says that you can come and see me. This is, again, within the state of Michigan. And this is the laws as of December 30th, 2023. Um you can see me up to 10 visits or 21 days, whichever comes first without a referral. Oh, so if you know that you're going to be seen for longer of that for the same issue, then you probably need to get a referral. But the great part is, is that after I do my evaluation, I can send that evaluation off to your doctor. They can sign it and that works like a prescription. Mm. So in terms of the legality of it, that's what the law says in the state of Michigan. Now, the insurance company, they have their own rules. And again, so some insurance companies trust PTs a lot, and they mm-hmm. say, go for it. We'll pay for it. That's fine. There are other insurance companies that it's not that they just don't trust PTs, but they don't trust anybody to make any financial decisions without them intervening, um, that they want a referral. So you have to go see your primary care. You have to get the referral in order for that to get covered by your insurance. And so that's a separate insurance-related issue. Mm. So because I don't deal with insurance, I don't have those rules to just come and see me, especially if you want to pay out of pocket. Um, The law says that you can come see me. Mm. And then earlier you were kind of talking about that you don't just, well, you don't just treat injuries, right? So can you touch on a little bit? Because I think that's a common misconception with PTs that they're just focusing on treating injuries, right? But there's a lot of other things that you do. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, you can look at it from the perspective of like, okay, I, I uh, sprained an ankle, right? And we think of that as an injury. Um, but, I, you know, PTs also deal with pain that's not necessarily from an injury. Mm. So meaning, um, you know, just sudden onset of back pain, Mm. lower back pain. Um, That's something that we can deal with. Even if you just woke up one day and you were in pain, that's something that we can kind of take a look at. So Mm. when we're talking injury, Mm. right, you injured yourself or you woke up in some pain. Mm. Beyond that, beyond being in pain and just trying to get back to like normal, that's the other thing we can help with that, unfortunately, insurance does not like to pay for, which is to improve your skills. Exactly. Right? The to get stream. even better at the thing. Mm-hmm. So we've hit normal. We don't have any pain. We're able to get out of bed. We're able to do what are called our activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. We can brush our teeth. We can feed ourselves. We can wave our own butt. Yeah. 
get dressed, right? That's the stuff that insurance companies are like, hey, if you can do that, then you're considered normal. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything beyond that, insurance companies don't like to pay for. So if, if your injury is getting the way of you just existing as a human, right? they love paying for that. Yeah. If you don't have quite the range of motion to get your splits or you don't quite right. have the range of motion to get your leg high up in the air. Insurance companies don't like any of that. Exactly. So they won't pay for any of that. However, physical therapists can hundred percent help with that stuff. Mm. Now I'll tell you working in a clinic, um, because they primarily see people with insurance, they are much less likely to work with you to work on any of those other skills. Now, you can. There's a lot of clinics who will offer private pay or cash pay Mm. the same way that I see people with cash pay. Um, But that would be the only way for you to ever be able to work on that type of stuff Mm. with a physical therapist is to pay out of pocket. Mm. And it's kind of unfortunate uh, in one respect, but, you know, that's not what insurance was made for. Mm -hmm. So I completely understand that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're working on, like, developing a dancer's skill like let's say it's not injury based let's say it's just not injury focused just like honing on maybe like getting their splits or something what's like one of the most common things that you feel like is kind of like a hidden secret maybe right that like really helps them what's one of those things that you commonly see um i mean not to necessarily like uh beat a dead horse but i think everywhere in dance science, dance health, dance wellness these days, we're talking about strength, 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 strength. And I'm just going to keep saying that as well. (laughs) Um, That really all the issues, all the issues come down to strength. Um, Whether or not you're not able to get your splits, you're not able to get your leg high enough in the air, you can't jump high enough. Like it all comes down to strength in some regards. And I think, for the longest time, dancers keep going, well, I need to become more flexible. I need to become more flexible. Yes. But, like, how many of us have tried that and it still didn't work? Yeah. I mean. So, like, maybe pick a different thing to do. <laughs> this is a, a question I have brought up to my students. Because um, I, I teach at the University of Michigan in the dance department, uh, mm-hmm. a kinesiology course. And one of the projects that we were working on was creating their own cross-training program. Mm-hmm based on all the things that we've been learning, you know, about how the body works and how muscles work and all of this stuff. And we were going around and just like workshopping together. So I had students giving me examples of things that they want to include in their program to help them get better at a thing. And there were a few of my students this last year that their entire list was stretches. And I I looked at them and I said, no, you do that stretch, right? They're like, yeah. I said, has that been has that been achieving the goal that you wanted to? Well, no. Okay. Well, do you want to maybe pick something different then? Mm. Like, let's let's think a little bit more on like, okay, well, you've already been doing that and it didn't already work, so we need to refocus. And when I say strength, and you're talking about like the splits, right? Yeah. It seems like bonkers why that yeah. would even be involved. Yeah. And when I say strength. I include in that because it's a little bit tricky sometimes to to parse out what's truly strength and what is motor control. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I include them all when Mm -hmm. I say strength. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really anything but stretching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That sometimes it's more about learning how to place your hips, how to Mm -hmm. position yourself. Um, 
doing a really good warm up ahead of time yes. and a, uh, a moving a dynamic warm up mm-hmm. right will also help you with your split mm. way more than sitting down in the stretch ever yeah. will yes <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about dynamic warm ups yeah absolutely <laughs> we're hitting all the soap we're hitting everything today. <laughs> we're going down the list um, yeah so dynamic warm-ups this is something i love talking about because it's like such a simple thing to implement mm-hmm. into a dancer's repertoire right that can help with so many things automatically like with mm-hmm. a, a very simple shift mm-hmm. and that is a lot of dancers come into class if they even come in with enough time to do a warm up and they sit in a split. So they sit in a frog stretch, right? And like for all of the dancers these days that I hear complaining about their hip problems, <laughs> I think this is a big reason why. <laughs> because we sit in the in the straddle or we sit in a frog stretch. Um and what we're doing there is like stretching out a joint that yeah. desperately needs Stability. stability yes <laughs> i mean that feeling of like oh i really need to pop my hip right now generally speaking is because all the muscles around our hip are like dying from trying to hold you together yeah like a rubber band yeah and they're not they're just not prepared to do that to like hold your legs stable so in order to get rid of the i need to pop my hip feeling we really need to strengthen the muscles around the hip mm. and then we don't have that feeling so much anymore mm. um but doing a dynamic warm-up literally means moving. Mm-hmm. I always say for a sub-maximal range of motion. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to your extreme yet. You're right. just moving just moving around, kind of small. Slowly building up your cardiovascular respiratory system. So we're, we want to start breathing a little heavier as we mm-hmm. go. We want to get a little packy, a little bit sweaty by the mm-hmm. end of it. Mm-hmm. And that is it. As you get further along, as you start warming up, as your body literally starts to feel warmer, then you can start going closer to your maximum mm. in terms of range of motion. Mm. But that's literally what it's meant to do. It helps prevent uh, some acute overstretching. Mm. It helps prevent overuse type injuries. It helps prepare our body so that we don't have acute like landing wrong, mm. breaking an ankle. ACL tear, like we're priming our motor system to be ready to move. Mm. And then again, our cardiovascular system, we're way less likely to have cardiovascular, sudden cardiovascular issues by doing that. Mm-hmm. So it, like it prevents so many things just to like do a really good warm up that should last between 10 and 20 minutes. Okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, that's the important part. Between 10 and 20 minutes. So if you're the kind of dancer, and I totally was, I mean, I just, like admitted that I was failing a biochemistry class twice. So I'm not afraid to admit that like, I was like at least five minutes late to class every day. Uh, That's just the kind of person I was. Been a lot better about it. (laughs) That's just the kind of person I was. I cannot wake up for anything. But that means that if you don't have time to do the warm up before class, it means that that first 10 to 20 minutes of class Mm. is your warm up. You're Uh, not allowed to go to your maximum. So scaling going into class Mm. and going immediately into a grand plie and immediately into your furthest, Ombre forward. Just don't. Just like hang back. And you know, again, the way that you're describing it too, I think teachers can feel like it's a little complicated learning about dynamic warmups, but I think it can be one of the most simplest things, right? Like the simplest little movements, right? Can go a long way. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to use equipment. I mean, it can just be, right? It can just be standing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I personally, the way that I choose to um, design my warm-ups is completely non-dancey mm. because we're about to be doing a lot of dancing. Right. <laughs> so mine is completely non-dancey. Uh, honestly, it's based off of um, Heather Southwick's uh, warm-up that she presented in 2017. 2017? At I-Adams. So. Mm. Yes, at the Houston um, I-Adams mm. International Association of Dance Medicine and Science Conference. <laughs> Mine is very much based off of that because I was like, this is so quick and dirty and I love it. And why the heck not? Um, so that's, that's sort of what I've modeled mine after. And it literally is just like general calisthenics yeah, across just the board. Like very simple. <laughs> yeah. Again, it does not have to be complicated. No. It, it's so brainless. Once you like get to learn how like those general movements, you just, do them and then you're done right and it's great yeah someone referred to it as kind of like a mini movement session and i thought that was kind of an interesting way of thinking about it because then again it's not complicated that that style isn't necessarily for everyone and i totally get that like when i'm in a modern class i usually start my warm-up uh very differently Mm -hmm. because i'm not just priming the body to like move i'm also probably priming the body to do a little bit of improvisation Mm. Right, because that's another big part of modern dance is like improvisation, partnering, that type of stuff where I'm, I want to also ready them for that. Mm. So I will use a lot of improvisation, but we might look at it from an anatomical perspective. Right. And so I usually like to do a little bit of like, let's move just in the sagittal plane mm. for a minute and feel everything that moves in the sagittal plane. And we learn a little bit about our bodies as we go, mm. but doing a little bit more improvisation keeping the same framework in mind that we're moving submaximally, we're slowly right. increasing our heart rate, we're slowly starting to move more muscle groups all together. Yes. That keep the same framework in mind mm-hmm. that we just don't do calisthenics. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So you're keeping the same framework, but you're just kind of adjusting it a little bit for each dance style. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And again, that's important for teachers to know. Yeah. 100%. So what would be kind of your one tidbit of wisdom to our audience today? So just because and today's main topic, and I I'm sure hope that I covered enough of it throughout this whole thing. <laughs> I love talking about it to people because I love opening up their eyes to how the healthcare system works and how mm-hmm. insurance works. Um, so no. The biggest takeaway that I can tell you is that you really need to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know your body best. Um, if you walk into a primary care's office and they tell you we'll just stay off of it for six weeks and that you'll be fine. If you don't feel in your gut that that is the right thing for you, mm. then you need to get a different person's opinion. Mm. Um, and keep, keep going until you hear an opinion that you feel is right for you. Mm. That's how I feel about it. Now, if you have gone through like, 10 providers and they all say the exact same thing mm. you may start really thinking that's, that yeah. they're out of something that's also but, an issue yeah yeah when i when i go see especially again a primary care physician they should be referring mm. that's their main job if they're not referring they might not be doing their job well mm. and you know so it's, it's definitely worth investigating further Dancers are so smart, right? They're so body aware. They feel when something's wrong most of the time, right? Would you would you agree? Yeah, I think I think we're really good at recognizing when something's not right, mm-hmm. but we're not always great at figuring out what it is. Of course, that's where like mm-hmm. I come in. 
you know, or some other specialist comes in. Yeah. But, you know, usually they feel some kind of like signal. Yeah. Or something, yeah. you know. And I, I haven't found too many dancers that are completely unaware of what's happening in their own body. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while I find somebody who's like, yeah, I can tell something's wrong, but like, what's up? Yeah. And then I start to do a little bit of digging and immediately they go, oh yeah, that is wrong. Oh yeah, that's wrong. Oh yeah, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And now they can suddenly identify specific things. Yeah. But without somebody intervening, you know, they just have a hard time putting it into words. And yeah. I can understand that. I'm of not course. a words person. I'm a numbers person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a movement person. <laughs> um, so I can understand not being able to put it into words. And again, you as a dance PT are able to have that conversation with them, right? Yeah. You can, yeah. yeah. And, and help them identify what's going on in their own body if they don't have the words for it. Exactly. And to be able to give them guidance on, even if it's not working with me, like what the next step should be. Because yeah. I've certainly, I've run across those people too, where I say like, that's not a thing in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, you should go see this kind of specialist. Referring, yeah. And if they don't tell you at least this thing, go find another one. Yeah. You're good at referring. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I have a few, um, of my professional dancer colleagues that I talk to all the time about this stuff that are, you know, in the midst of their own, uh, quest to find the right provider for them. And I ask them what, what did that provider say to you? And knowing, knowing what I know Mm -hmm. about the human body, I will give my thoughts on what their provider said to them, whether or not I thought that it was seemed appropriate or they're just, uh, blowing smoke. Yeah. You know, cookie cutter information. I don't know how many primary care physicians I get referrals from that say that somebody's got sciatica when they don't have sciatica. Are you serious? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an easy word to say. Hmm. It's an easy word to throw out to just when, yeah, so not to get too technical, but true sciatica comes from your sciatic nerve. nerve. It's when it's there's an impingement happening. Yeah. Most often, right in the middle of your butt cheek. Yeah. That's sciatica. Yeah. Most people who have quote-unquote sciatica have a problem coming from their lower back, uh, not their sciatic nerve, which is external to their lower back. Uh, if it's coming from their lower back, it is called radiculopathy. Uh, a much worse word than sciatica. Jeez. <laughs> it's harder to say. It's weird. Um, so a lot of doctors will refer out and say that somebody has sciatica because they have these symptoms of sciatica. Mm. But when we dig a little bit further, we find out it's not sciatica, it's radiculopathy. But if I hear a primary care physician say, oh, you've got sciatica, <laughs> I, I question the like, validity of anything that comes out of their mouth. Yeah. And it's it's good that you're being open about this because from our perspective, we can kind of see now, okay, how should a general practitioner, like what kind of advice should they be giving us and what kind of advice should they not be giving us, right? Right. Are they just kind of... me, what I am taught in my line of work, technically, we are not allowed to diagnose somebody from a medical standpoint. Mm. I'm fine with that. Because all that is is words on a piece of paper. So I'm, I'm okay. Um, now, what I prefer receiving from a doctor on a prescription is leg pain. Mm. Just general you know, not pain. sciatica. Because mm. now you've defined it as sciatica and somebody thinks they have sciatica and yes. they go on Google. Yep. 
and they find a piriformis stretch and they yep. stretch the crap out of their piriformis and it does nothing for them. Literally, <laughs> yes. Like, sciatica. Yes. <laughs> and then trying to convince them that they don't they have don't. sciatica and they should stop doing that stretch oh is like impossible. God. So again, it's something we're taught in CT school because we are not allowed to diagnose that we are not supposed to tell people. Uh I see. That they've got a thing if they haven't been diagnosed already by a doctor. Oh, I see. Just like, so that's where please stop telling them they have sciatica. Please just say, well, you've had leg pain and I would love for you to see a physical therapist. See, this is why it's important to like really just keep chugging until you find a good primary care. Because if you don't have a good primary care, I mean, you basically have nothing, right? Yeah. And I don't want to knock primary care physicians because yeah. there are definitely really good primary care physicians. Yeah. I think that the medical system is understaffed mm. and unfortunately it falls a lot on them to have to help patients make decisions yeah wear a million hats um, about their health care and you know there's way fewer specialists than there are primary care physicians mm. so like if everybody's getting referred out all the time to specialists it means specialists get overloaded and this mm. is why you're on a wait list for months understandably however if it truly is an issue where a primary care physician is out of their wheelhouse, they should be referring out. And like with the sciatica example, you were saying like, you know, the people go on Google, which is very true. And then it affects them mentally, right? Because mm -hmm. now they're mm -hmm. dealing, it could be traumatic for them to hear that and to kind of go through that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's another example to um, the data that's out there on lower back pain. Mm. I mean, that it has been studied up the wazoo because there's so many people with lower back pain. Lower back so pain. I get it. But the data that's out there says that if you go and get an MRI for your back pain or imaging in general, you're much more likely to go down the route of having surgery. Hmm. You're also much more likely to feel bad about yourself. Wow. Yeah. That is... So when I speak to people about should I or should I not go get an MRI, I say to them, is this going to affect your treatment? Mm -hmm. Are you, is surgery even on the table for you? Right. Is it and really? a lot of people will say, no, 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 I'm never getting surgery. And I say, yeah. well, then why do we need to go get an MRI? Yeah. Because it's also affecting people psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so I, t I give them those facts. I tell them, if you go get an MRI, you're much more likely to feel bad about yourself. Mm. And you're much more likely to go down the track of yeah, having surgery and it, these are just correlations it's not causation it's just, right it's it puts just, them in the category of yeah you know correlation um but i also tell them if it's not affecting how we're how we're treating things anyway if you're still just going to come to me for pt then, that is an extra trip that you need to make to the doctor because that's an hour that you have to sit in that stupid machine and, and try to hold still right and what's the point if it's not gonna it's not going to change anything. Yeah. Only it's giving somebody peace of mind mm. that they can identify what their problem is. But yes. I can tell you right now, I can usually figure that out without an MRI. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't need the MRI. I love that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, is it L4 or L5? But do I need to know? Yeah. Yeah. Is it going to change anything about what I, what I do? Because I'm probably going to work on all of it. Right. Because you're coming from a holistic standpoint anyways. You're not just, Correct. yeah. So it really doesn't affect the, what the I'm going to do anyway. From a PT. It's L4 versus L5. Yeah. I know it's your lower back. I know it's in your lumbar spine. I know it's affecting the nerves around it. I know where those nerves sit. And I think that's good for people to know because, like you said, when they get the MRI referral, they jump on it, they schedule it, and then 
Yeah. I don't really think people think about, like, do I really need it? Yeah. Or what and are the implications? To be fair, too, like, an MRI is much safer to go through because yeah. it's, it's magnets. Mm-hmm. It's not radiation. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times doctors will send people for an X-ray beforehand. Mm. And every once in a while they send for a CT scan to have their lower backs looked at, especially if people can't tolerate the MRI machine for that long because the CT scan goes, like, look at split versus an MRI. But both of those options mean that we're putting our body through radiation, mm-hmm. which can also cause cancer and yeah, other issues. So. Yeah. It's something to think about. Because, yeah. again... It's fine. It's one thing if, like, you truly need it and you're right. getting one in however many years. But it's different if you're a hypochondriac like my sister, who probably, if she had the option, would be getting an X-ray every yeah, week. Just to, like, comfort, feel a sense right. of comfort, yeah, that something's not right. wrong, right? Yeah. Which I understand. Yeah. So it's it's something that you have to weigh up if you are going to be getting particularly any kind of imaging that involves radiation. Yeah. It's definitely worth taking a second thought about. Because, I mean, today's conversation has kind of been like the handbook for like guiding dancers and humans through healthcare, right? Because I mean, you said that they send handbooks, but like who actually reads them? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, they're, it's, those handbooks are specifically about what your insurance covers. And yeah. let me tell you, I have read through those before and I go, really? I still don't know what you cover. You still don't tell me what you cover. Really? Are um, they just not yeah. well organized? It, Cause I've never really looked at one. Yeah. They, they write everything out in like paragraph form. Oh my gosh. And, I don't have the brain capacity. You know, they talk in generalities a lot of times. I'm like, no, I need to know the dollar amount that you are going to cover for this thing. Really? And do you cover um, cer- certain groups, I think, are better at, at putting it into chart form, which is really mm-hmm. what I want to see. I want to see a nice yeah. chart. And I get to see the chart on my end if I ever um, have to verify it in the past, if I've ever had to verify someone's insurance. I really don't do that anymore because that's, I just don't communicate with them, but. Then they give you an actual dollar amount. They give you a, like, we we cover this thing in this instance, this type of way, and, you know, then there's much more detail on it. But the pamphlets that I get from my insurance company as a consumer, I'm always like, I still don't know what you cover. And I, I have mean, no idea what you cover. For me, just seeing paragraphs just kind of overwhelms me, and I'll be less likely to read it. Right. And, I, I mean, I, I've kind of generally run through them before, but I still don't feel like they they tell you what they cover. They tell you that they're going to help you and that you're going to be great. But like, are you going to cover an x-ray if it's done at a outpatient facility? Are you going to cover an x-ray if it's done at a hospital? Are you going to cover like, cause there, there is a difference and this is, uh, it's the healthcare system is very complicated, but um, depending on who is doing the billing, Mm. it runs through different parts of that insurance company potentially. So uh, this is, specific to Medicare, but if you've heard of like Medicare part A, part B, mm-hmm. like if you're under 65, you probably don't know what that means yet. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and honestly, I can't keep them straight either all the time. I just know that if it's a hospital system and you have been admitted to the hospital, so it's mm-hmm. not an outpatient thing. It's you're admitted. One part of Medicare pays for that. Mm-hmm. If it's something that's outpatient, still through a hospital system or through anybody else who's you know, an outpatient type of thing, a different part of Medicare pays for that. I see. Your medications, a different part of Medicare pays for that. So So complicated. It it gets really dicey when you're 
it's not just we cover all x-rays. Right. They will specify. I will cover x-rays of this kind and that kind, but not that kind. <laughs> the weirdest little specifications. <laughs> for and no... that's the stuff that they don't put in the pamphlet. <laughs> then what's the point of the pamphlet? <laughs> right. Like... Then, like, I want to know, like, what are my co-pays and co-insurances for every... Sometimes they'll just say specialist. What specialist? And then I'm like, well, am I considered a specialist? Like, is a PT considered a specialist? Because sometimes PTs are and sometimes they're not. Sometimes PTs are their own separate thing. PTs and OTs and speech are therapies outside of specialists. And sometimes they're grouped as specialists. Mm. So you you can't even get through some of the information, which is frightening. (laughs) Right. If I'm not if I'm not getting that information and I have questions about it, oh I know nobody else. Yeah. No there's no there's no way. Yeah. The best way to know this could be my other little tidbit of information on the way out. The best way to truly know what your insurance covers is to call them and bug the crap out of them. Oh, See that's call them. That See is it. good advice. And then to them as they are to you. That is actually really good advice because, yeah. again, who's going to read a pamphlet and actually understand yeah. it and actually benefit from it? And I know from the provider standpoint, we can also only get so much information mm. from the insurance company because they can't just tell you everything about everything. a person's plan. Yeah, and um, particularly with like with uh, deductibles, when um, a provider who deals with insurance calls the insurance company to get an idea of what gets covered, what the copays are, all of that kind of stuff, they can't tell them a specific number on a deductible, mm-hmm. and that is because it takes them a few weeks for things to process. So it's never an updated number, mm-hmm. and so they won't give. They'll say this is what the total deductible was for the year, but we can't tell you where they're at right now. That's great. So even as a provider, we can't get all the information. The only person who can truly get all the real information is the consumer. Mm. And so you have to call and bug the crap out of them. I think that that is literally the best advice is just calling. Mm-hmm. Call their helpline. Yeah. <laughs> Be obnoxious. Ask, yeah. Ask a million questions. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you deserve answers I, to them. Yeah. I had one, I had one client one time that um, she, it was a really interesting case that she ended up with a nerve palsy in her leg, probably sciatic, maybe some others, um, after giving birth. Mm. It was during birth that basically she had an uh, impingement for a very long time on the nerves and ended up with a nerve palsy in her leg to the point where she was using a walker. Mm. Like she couldn't really operate most of her life Mm. and her neurologist wanted her to continue coming to PT for at least a year Mm. um, after all of this happened, because that is the best window of time to have the best recovery. Mm. So like anytime after a stroke, after anything really neurologic, um, your best window of time to make improvements is that first year after Mm. the first year. It's, not to say that you're like stuck with what you have, you can still make improvements, but it's a lot slower. Mm. So her neurologist really wanted her to continue with PT mm. for the whole next year. And um, it's unfortunate the uh, clinic that I was working for at the time um, noticed that she was only coming in once a week and we're like, mm, this doesn't seem right. We're probably not going to get paid by the insurance company. She needs to get discharged. And she and I both discussed it. And she was like, well, my neurologist wants me to continue, so I'm coming. And I was like, well, there's the potential that you might get cut off from insurance and that you might have to pay out of pocket. So 
instead what I ended up doing, um, because they, I think her insurance company was already reviewing her case and I had her call them and talk to them. Mm. Um, I then got on the phone with somebody from her insurance company and they mm. said, we will pre-approve whatever visits you want, as long as you tell us how many you want and oh. give us valid reason. Cause the person on the other end of the line was a PT. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. Right. And I was like, listen, we need to finish out the year. Yeah. That is, I was told we need to finish out the year that her neurologist wants and she's only being seen once a week. So we're not asking the world yeah. and technically insurance companies don't pay us that well. Yeah. So I mean. <laughs> we weren't asking for a ton of money. Um, and I said, he has requested that we finish out the year. Mm-hmm. And so I would like X number of visits through the end of this year. And then I will call contact you at the start of the next year for mm-hmm. the remainder of her, her year, you know, not the calendar year. And she approved them. So we were approved for one visit a week for the remainder of, and mind you, because of all of that and because of me working with her, I think, and her not getting kicked out as soon as she otherwise would have, she got back to the point where she was jogging mm-hmm. And seeing, right, where he was trying to cut her off while she was still using a cane and had a um, AFO. So (laughs) let me just tell you, this is why I choose not to work insurance company. Exactly. (laughs) Not that the insurance company actually did a good job that time, but that that was a good um, story. It was the fear of not being getting or not getting paid by the insurance company. Of course, that was the main driver of why. I was being asked to discharge her. Yeah. So I think calling and being an advocate is the most important, even for dancers and non-dancers, if any non-dancers. I I knew without her phone call, I wasn't going to get anywhere. No. So I made her call, talk to somebody. She came back to me and said, this is what they said. And she said, here's the phone number of the lady to call. So great. Wow. I called, gave my explanation so that I could say it in, uh, you know, more technical jargon. And we got the visits that we asked for. Yeah, I mean, a so. single phone call saved so much energy yeah. and time and money. I mean, right. It's and and got her back to functioning where she didn't have to wear the AFO anymore. Right. She didn't have to if you don't own the AFO. It's just like an ankle brace. Um, she didn't have to wear that anymore. She wasn't using a cane anymore. She was back to like full function at work, and then was able to get back to jogging and skiing. Yeah. So. That's, I mean, Which is truly her normal because she was only in her very early 30s, if not late 20s. And if that was going to be the rest of her life, that would stink. Well, thank you so much for today's episode. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of the Dance Science Podcast. I'm your host, The Dance Scientist, and if you really enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to either leave a review, you can also comment right on the episode below, and you can also send me a direct message right on Instagram. Again, thank you for being here with us today, and I look forward to seeing you guys in my next episode. All right, I really enjoyed today's episode with the ginger. Again, she was coming from the perspective of a physical therapist, and then I was kind of able to bounce back questions with her is, you know, why do things happen the way that they do, right? What are the rules behind it? You know, why are all these barriers up for dancers getting the treatment that they deserve, right? And so one of the things we talked about today was the importance of dancers advocating for themselves, right? And that can be hard for dancers when they start to feel pain, right? 
because dancers are also taught to kind of ignore their pain and, you know, pain is weakness, right? But we have to start rewiring some of these outdated and toxic teaching traditions, right? It starts with us as dance educators, right? We have to decide what kind of culture we want and what kind of environment we want with our dancers. Another thing she touched on, which I think is like, honestly, some of like the best advice is Calling insurance is sometimes the best way to just get direct answers, right? And honestly, that might save you a lot of headaches of kind of going back and forth and dealing with, you know, maybe like a million phone calls could maybe get solved with just one phone call directly to your insurance. Again, she clarified why she doesn't work with insurance. Again, so many barriers on her side as the PT and then also barriers with dancers even just getting the treatment that they need. She also touched on what are general practitioners. Again, very, very, very important for dancers and just regular humans. Even if you're listening to this podcast and you don't happen to be a dancer, this is just great information for us to take in. Again, what general practitioners are and then what they should not be doing, right? You know, what are what are kind of their scope of practice and how do we know when they're kind of bleeding outside of that practice? She also touched on the importance of dancers seeing a dance PT if they can, right? Again, we talked about it in a way like dance PTs know the language of dance, right? They know choreography, they know movement patterns. And so, you know, you're really kind of going to a different breed, in my opinion, when you see a dance PT versus a general PT. 